0: Perhaps there's no more terrifying verse in scripture than Matthew 27 verse 23. It's at the end of the sermon on the mount. Jesus says, "And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness." No more terrifying verse, I think, in all of scripture. "I never knew you. Depart from me." Now, hypothetically, how would you respond? If those were the first words you heard from the Lord Jesus after your death. I remember in seminary once imagining what my response would be if Jesus said that to me. And my initial instinct exposed to me how quickly my understanding of saving faith could deteriorate. This morning, by God's grace from Philippians 3, verses 7 through 8, we're going to fortify our understanding Of saving faith. For some of you, you may understand saving faith truly for the first time. But for many of you, the encouragement will be for you to keep believing in Jesus Christ. The hope of the gospel is simple, really. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. The question we have to ask ourselves is, do I have that saving faith? Do I have that saving faith? Paul had written to the church in Philippi to encourage the Philippians to maintain unity while facing opposition for the gospel. It was a church that he had planted about 10 years prior. Paul was at that time in Rome awaiting trial before crazy Emperor Nero really for committing no crimes except proclaiming Christ, which wasn't even a crime. Paul was writing to encourage them as they were facing opposition themselves. In Philippians 3.1, we saw last week that Paul had a warning for them. It was something that he had warned them in the many times that he'd been with them. He had said to them, To write the same things again is no trouble to me, Philippians 3.1, and it's a safeguard for you. Paul proceeded to warn against the false teachers who followed Paul wherever he went. Last week, we called them the Judaizers. They were Jews who were pursuing new Gentile converts who followed Christ and pursuing them, telling them that their salvation wouldn't be complete unless they followed the Old Testament law. We saw last week in 3 verses 2 through 3, Paul's strong language for those who place confidence in the flesh. Really, the strong language for those who advocated others to do that. Confidence in the flesh means the things that we do, the things that we can boast in, in contrast to glorying in Christ Jesus, placing our confidence in what Jesus Christ did and what he alone can do in taking the punishment of our sin. I'm going to read verses 3, 2 through 3 in review of last week. Again, this is strong language because this is a serious issue. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Part of Paul's argument against these false teachers was his own testimony of the futility of placing confidence in the flesh, of boasting in what he had done. It hadn't made him right with God. And so he contrasts himself with these Judaizers, with these false teachers in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 3. He said, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I have far more. I've got them beat at their game. And then he lists all the things that he used to put confidence in. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. These biographical details were what Paul used to place his confidence in. But this morning, we're going to see how Paul came to view those previous accomplishments. So I'm going to read now from Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11. Really, in the Greek, we've got one long sentence from verses 2 through 11. A lot of your Bibles will show one paragraph from uh, verses 2 through 6 and breaks up a, 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 another one. Do you, do you want, when I just said that about a long sentence, that's not even true at all. I don't even know why I said that. But uh, anyways, 7 through 11 together is a long sentence. This is what happens when I don't look at what I already have prepped. Uh, But I'm going to break it into two parts. And some of that is because verses 9 through 11 are so rich. Like 9 through 11, and as I read through them, you're going to see, wow, those are really good verses. And I want to know those verses more. And I think that particularly when you see in verse 10, that sounds good, but I feel like I've got more of a feeling of it more than I really understand it. At least that's how I feel when I read it. So verses 9 through 11 are so rich. And I think that the the, the 7 through 8... uh, um, will we'll, we'll benefit from us focusing on them this week. So this is how Paul responds to everything he used to count as gain, verses 7 through 11. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God and the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Like I said, that is rich language there. Let's p- pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this time in your word, and uh, we are really humbled uh, uh, anytime we hold your word and we read it. Uh, Father, we thank you for preserving it for us. And Lord, we uh, come fully aware that apart from your grace working through your spirit in our lives, uh, Lord, we would never respond to this, Lord. We would never see the beauty of the gospel. we never see the beauty of Christ we would never see how much we desperately need a Savior. And so, Lord, I pray, Father, that you would be doing that work in our hearts this morning. Lord, whether it's the first time or just to keep that fresh in our hearts, both to understand how desperately we need a Savior and how wonderful Jesus Christ is. Uh, really, there's, uh, there's nothing better we can pray than asking you to be doing that work in our hearts. So please, uh, Father, do what I can't do through, through words, but you can do through your word, through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. In Philippians 3, verses 7 to 8 this morning, we're going to see two essential aspects of saving faith so that you will believe and keep believing in Jesus Christ. We're going to see two essential aspects of saving faith so that you will believe and keep believing in Jesus Christ. Now, if you've got your, your notes there, you'll see that I've actually got a, a full paragraph there uh, because I wanted to 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 get that down and, and written because I didn't want to have to re- repeat that again and again. So if you don't have your notes, just make sure to grab it again. But I wanted to put down there what are these, these, these two essential aspects. And so I put them right into your notes because we're going to see really that Paul has... Four, he has kind of like, and I've called them financial statements. If I had had more time, I probably would have switched them to spiritual appraisals. I thought about four balance sheets. He uses some very financial language, and he has four parallel statements. Each of them have both of these essential aspects of saving faith. So the first first one of these is that we must accurately evaluate our spiritual condition apart from Christ. We must accurately evaluate our spiritual condition apart from Christ. Who we are before being saved by him. Who we are without Christ. The second, or another essential aspect of saving faith, is that we must accurately evaluate the worth of Christ. So we need to see ourselves truly, and we need to see Christ truly. We need to evaluate ourselves rightly, and we need to evaluate Christ rightly. And I've tried to avoid saying that these are the first and second. I'm sure that we could add more. We could add in all kinds of doctrinally true things. But these are two essential aspects of saving faith. Both aspects occur in each of these four statements of profit and loss that the Apostle Paul makes in verses 7 through 8. The first one is in verse 7, and then the next three are in verse 8. And if you've got your, your, your notes there, you can see I even put that text in there to keep those clear. Paul uses this profit and loss language as a picture, and it's a financial picture, to help us understand the true and continuing nature of saving faith, of what it means to glory in Christ. So let's look at these first of these financial statements in verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, that's a financial word there, gain, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Again, another financial word, loss. Whatever things is everything in verses 5 to 6 that Paul used to place his confidence in. If God had asked Paul why he should let Paul into heaven, Paul had a list ready. He would have argued that there's no better candidate. He had all the credentials. He would have whipped out his resume and said, I'm here, God. The Greek word for gain is a financial term for profit or advantage. Paul had been confident in his spiritual assets, his spiritual net worth. In the Greek, the word gain, though, is plural, gains, gains. Paul had multiple columns in which he saw himself coming out ahead. When it comes to placing confidence in our flesh, we like to diversify our portfolio, right? We don't want to all invest in just one thing. No one wants to say, well, there's this one time I gave money, right? That would not be very good. If you wanted to place confidence in your flesh, which we're not going to recommend, but if you did, you wouldn't want to just put it into one thing, right? You'd want to have many. That's what Paul has here. He has a list of seven. Many people have multiple religious columns that they're keeping a tally on. Maybe it's their religious upbringing, I grew up going to a certain kind of church. I grew up going to a cessationist, dispensational, reformed NASB church. Or maybe their religious past they could put confidence in. I responded to an altar call. I raised my hand. I prayed the sinner's prayer. I remember doing that. I was baptized at youth camp. Or maybe they put their confidence in a religious activity. I tithe. I stay for second hour. I never miss time of prayer, which is what we'll be doing today during second hour. Many people have more columns on their tally than just religious activities. They're a nice person, they volunteer, they give to charity, they take care of aging parents, they provide well for their family. Or maybe it's a list of things they haven't done. I've never committed adultery, I've never embezzled, I don't overdrink. Maybe they talk about a life change that they went through. I used to party, I used to drink, I used to sleep around, but I've given that up, I'm clean now. I'm not like other people who do bad things. We have all kinds of religious tallies we're tempted to place confidence in. Maybe you have a list of those, like Paul had. Paul's own list of gains was a mix of his ethnicity, his upbringing, and his spiritual activities. Now notice how Paul said, whatever things were, gain to me. See, God's perception of Paul's gains was not the same as Paul's. What Paul valued was not what God valued. Paul's ability to evaluate spiritual worth was broken. Sin had deceived Paul. He was by nature, by nature, by birth, too optimistic. We do not come out of the womb as blank slates, accurately able to perceive our worth. We come out deceived. We want to make more of our tally, more of our columns. We look at them and say, we're doing great. His spiritual calculator was broken. Everything came out as an asset. Paul desperately needed a spiritual accounting class, and we're going to see if he gets one. God showed Paul the insufficiency of his gains. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. The the verb have counted is in the Greek tense perfect. It's an event that's completed, that has results existing until the present time. It's in the perfect tense. In the past... Paul counted. This is this, this something he did, and the effects which continue into the future, I mean, continue in the present. He counted, he considered, he regarded those things, all those things that had been previously his gains, he counted them as loss. And the effect of doing so continued until the time of his writing this. See, Paul began to see the actual worth of all those gains on the road to Damascus when he saw the resurrected, exalted Christ. It's Acts 9 that tells us that. Now, Saul, still breathing threats. Now, Paul had been previously called Saul, and this is going to describe what happened as a a, a zealous Pharisee. He was going around persecuting Christians. He's he's on the way to Damascus. Acts 9, verses 1 through 9. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, which is true Christianity, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, says in verse 7, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing, and leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. He was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. What a sobering three days Paul had there he realized his spiritual bankruptcy. His stock market had crashed. His treasure chest was empty. His credit card was denied. Instead of positives in his accounting book, instead of his list of gains that he had, there was a, a negative with, and, you know, one of those Google infinity signs next to it, right? He could never get out of this hole. All his savings had been for nothing. He was hopelessly in the red in the red. I could imagine Paul sitting in his room, praying, fasting, and just reeling in shock. You can imagine him there like a man who is about to retire, confident that he had more than enough to live on no matter how many years he stayed alive. He had plenty stored away. It could cover no matter what health problems he had. But when he meets with his financial planner, you can imagine this man, he finds his accounts, all of them, have nothing in them. Not only was there no gain, everything he deposited was missing. There wasn't one penny. All the savings was for nothing. It was a complete loss. Paul uses the word loss in the singular. He had many gains. But when seen accurately, after seeing Jesus, the glory of Jesus Christ... All those gains, that list of seven things, and he probably could have added many more to them, were all one gigantic loss. Here we see an essential aspect of saving faith. I already told you what that is. If we're going to have true saving faith, we need to accurately evaluate our spiritual condition. God had audited Paul, and now Paul, the Pharisee, realized that he was no better than the tax collectors he had spent his life hating and thinking himself better than. He was like the rich young ruler, but he realized that he was worse than the thief on the cross. He was a Jew that realized that he was unclean as a Gentile dog. He had nothing. Paul's accurate spiritual evaluation didn't end in him wallowing in despair, though. He considered all his gains as a loss because he found something superior. Right? And this is beautiful. But whatever things were gained to me, Those things I have counted as a loss. I saw them for what they really were for the sake of Christ. That's good news. For the sake of Christ, for the goal of Christ, to get Christ. Paul had to count all of his gains as one gigantic loss. And here we see this second essential aspect of saving faith we have to accurately evaluate the worth of Christ. Without Christ, Paul had nothing, Paul only had a debt he couldn't repay. But to gain Christ was to gain from Christ forgiveness. It was to get righteousness from Christ and redemption from Christ and reconciliation from Christ and sanctification from Christ. It was to have the law written on his heart so that he loved obeying. Not just that he tried to to check all the boxes, but so that he loved obedience. To get Christ, it wasn't just to gain from Christ, it was to get Christ himself to get Christ the Savior, as the Messiah, the Anointed One, as the long-promised King, as a great high priest, as the prophet who is to come, as shepherd, as Savior, as brother, as Lord and Master. See, Paul, and, and I want to think more about this. I want you to think about it. Uh, Paul knew what it meant to get Christ. Because the Messiah was the one whom Scripture had prophesied about. Whom the Jews had been waiting for. When he sees in heaven, that's Jesus. The whole Old Testament comes rushing up to him. This is the Messiah. This This is the one. This is why we need to read our Old Testament. Because it points to Christ again and again and again and again. So Paul had all this theology built up so that when he saw that's Jesus He's like, I want him. Paul knew that to gain Christ was to join with Christ as Christ would reign on the earth and he would be forever with Christ in heaven. See, now that Paul had seen Christ's glory, he knew to get Christ was to get God himself. This whole verse here, verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. It reminds me of a, Jesus' parable of the treasure hidden in the field. Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. It is worth it. And for Paul, Jesus Christ is worth it. He saw the value of Christ. Paul had found Christ, and so he counted all as lost for the sake of Christ. He's like, I've got to have him. That means turning away from all that stuff. Okay, it's I don't I don't want that anymore. I want Christ. Paul's accurate viewing of his credentials as lost and of Christ as gain was essential to him becoming saved. And both are essential aspects to your believing in Jesus Christ. You cannot come to Jesus Christ. You cannot come to Jesus Christ without 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 realizing you bring nothing but loss. You don't bring anything to the table. You have to come to him with no gains to cling to, with no profit to boast in. And similarly true, you cannot come to Christ unless you realize that he is infinitely valuable. You have to believe that he's worth giving up everything for. You have to, if you're going to come to Christ, you have to see that you are both, that you are bankrupt, that you do not have what God requires, that you are in the whole, but you also have to see that Christ is priceless, that he's worth giving up everything for. Now, Paul's evaluation of his gains, as loss, was not a one-time only activity. Not just something that occurred at his salvation, and it shouldn't be for us either. This is not just something that we look back in the past at. We're going to see that this is ongoing. We see that with our next financial statement. It's kind of a brutal way of saying it. I, th- I-, I like spiritual appraisal better. But, anyways, beginning in verse 8 More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. We're going to see this, in, in, in this statement, we're going to see. Both of those, we have to accurately see ourselves and accurately value Christ. Paul continues, More than that, or indeed, I count all things to be lost. Count, now the word count here, the first count was in the perfect tense, which refers to, to, to something that has, is already finished and has ongoing results. This count, though, is in the present tense. Okay? And we see that in our English Bibles. Things I have counted. In verse 8, I count this, this, this is something ongoing now. Counting to be lost, counting all things as lost is what Paul habitually does, what he continually does. See, Paul didn't settle up with God. He didn't let Christ pay his previous debt and say, oh great, I've got a fresh start. Now I can start building up my gain column again. Now I can earn my way to God. And that's really, sadly, what Catholics think. Catholics think that when one is cleansed from original sin at baptism, they add then good works to their life, hoping that God will grant grace. So they look at some kind of cleansing, and now we're going to add to that cleansing gain. But that's not what Paul does. He continually counts all things as loss. And notice that. He says all things this time. In the first verse 7, he says, Whatever things, he, he, he looks back to verses 5 and 6, but this time in verse 8, Paul says all things. He adds to it. He adds to the loss column everything since knowing Christ. Paul counts his loss whatever he could have been tempted to trust in. Before and since his church planning, loss, his persecutions, loss his evangelism loss his hours of labors loss his prayers loss his preaching his sacrifice his zeal his blood earnestness all of that is lost and doesn't mean that didn't have value but when it came to being right before God it had no value he's not going to look and say but look at all these great things I've done since Damascus let me put my confidence in those no all of that is lost How quickly are we tempted to put our confidence in the work of God's Spirit in our lives? And we see this when we compare ourselves to others, right? Okay, what is the fruit of God's Spirit? If you are regenerative, if God's given you new life, if you have faith in Christ, you have God producing in you love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. But how many times have you judged yourself compared to someone else? I've got more self-control than them. That's boasting in the flesh there. Yes, it's the work of God's spirit, but that's looking back and saying, look, I'm better than them. I somehow deserve this. I've got more joy than them. I've got more love than them. I've got more self-control than them. Or maybe it's just maybe you don't even compare. You just pat yourself on the back. Now, there is room to rejoice in what God does in us through his spirit, but, but not as gain, not as something we can bring before him as an offering to justify our coming before him. See, it's more of Paul's accurate view of himself apart from Christ. Verse 8, More than that, I count all things to be lost. I keep doing this in view, and here we see the worth of Christ again, in view of the surpassing value of knowing or of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Knowledge here isn't just Head knowledge. Knowledge of Christ is not about facts about Christ. Knowledge of Christ is belonging to Christ. It is relationship with Christ. And we're going to see more of that value of that knowledge of Christ in verses 9 through through, through 11 in a couple weeks. It's, it's, it's a beautiful passage. But Paul brings out the personal nature of that relationship here in verse 8. He says, Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's the only time in the Bible uses this phrase. What a beautiful way to describe the knowledge of Christ, my Lord. There's inseparable commitment and affection. Intermingled obedience and trust, my Lord. Jesus is my Lord, my master. He's the center of my life. He's the Son of I orbit around. He's my everything to me. Knowing Christ is incompatible with stockpiling spiritual assets. You can't both rely on what you've done or what you've refrained from doing and value Christ as He deserves. To keep a tally of your obedience is to devalue Christ. It's to minimize Christ. To continue believing in Christ requires you to keep believing as when you were first saved. To keep viewing accurately the worth of Christ, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, and our condition apart from him. That's what he does. I count all things to be loss. The only way for you to continue in faith is to keep counting all things as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's what you did when you came to Christ. That's what you need to keep doing. That's why Paul warned the Philippians. There was a real danger from these false teachers. In Galatians, he talked about it: in another gospel. He talks about how they lose their gain if they accept this gospel. We have to realize that we are in danger of that too. That we could try to, in a sense, accept a different gospel. A gospel of making ourselves right with God. We must continue as we began. So, so far we've seen... Those, those two essential aspects of saving faith. It's not the only two, but two essential aspects of saving faith in both of these first two financial statements. We see another one in the middle of verse 8. I've got it in your notes there. Here's the third one. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Paul continues. So this accounting statement here, or this spiritual appraisal is shorter, but it has the same idea. Now, we have to say, why does Paul say basically the same thing four times? Because it's important, right? Just why he said, beware, three times in verse 2. He makes the same spiritual appraisal four times because he doesn't want us to miss it. He says, for whom? For whom? And that's, again, he's just looking back at Christ Jesus, my Lord. He does it real quickly this time but he reminds us again of the worth of Jesus Christ for whom it's for him it's on account of him it's because of him because of him i have suffered the loss in one it's one word in the greek i've suffered the loss this tense is in an aorist tense. It's a snapshot of a past event. It's just saying something happened. I suffered the loss. Now, that's really kind of an awkward way of saying this, I think, because most of the time we think of suffering as, as not just being bad, but, but it was something we wish didn't have to happen to us, right? Or, I wish I didn't have to go through that suffering. So, so it kind of gives the, the idea that, that, that Paul wishes this hadn't happened. You could also translate this as forfeited. Or, I've been deprived of. But again, those are kind of negative words, and they're negative words because he's talking about loss, right? It's tough to talk about loss without having some kind of negative side to it. See, on the way to Damascus, Paul had suffered the loss of all things, he had forfeited everything. He realized at that point his debt was unpayable. He filed right there, or sometime in those three days, I don't know exactly when, for spiritual bankruptcy. I think as soon as he saw Christ's glory, he knew. I'm doomed. Except Christ didn't destroy him, right? Instead he gives him a command and a commission. Imagine an explorer who has gone around the world searching for treasure. He has invested everything in this treasure hunting trip. Kind of imagining an Indiana Jones kind of guy. His suitcase now is filled with treasure. He's ready to get back to the museum. They're going to buy these treasures he's taken from you know, around the world, which is kind of sad because they don't have them anymore, but okay. Along the way, though, he's got this luggage full of treasure, and his ship hits a rock. The ship is going down quickly. The man, with his luggage full of treasure, jumps into the waters, and what does he do? He starts to sink, right? He's got his hand on that treasure and that luggage full of it. He has no chance of swimming while holding on to this luggage. He's plummeting like a rock. He can choose to die with a treasure or suffer the loss of this treasure-seeking trip, right? He can suffer the loss of it. In that moment, the explorer suffers the loss of all things to save himself, and he lets go of that weight that's dragging him down. He forfeits it. It would have been foolish to forfeit his life for that treasure, It's impossible not to think of Jesus' words in Matthew 16, verses 25 to 26. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains, the same word there, the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will man give in exchange for his soul? Paul thought, I've got that question answered. I can give something in exchange for my soul. But after seeing Christ as he is, he's like, I've got nothing to give in exchange for my soul. I need a substitute. Now Paul says here, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I think it's good to think about that all things. That all things may be different for different people. That primary application here in this passage is anything you'd be tempted to trust in, anything you'd be tempted to place your confidence in, that your flesh would like to boast of. If God were to say, "Why should I let you in my heaven?" You like, well, let me unroll my list. It's, it's. But I don't think that we should limit it to that. For Paul included things, and we've talked about these like as ethnicity, as culture, upbringing our good works, our law-keeping, our morality, our religious effort, our distinctions, how we are unlike others. We haven't sinned as much as some people, sinned in different ways than some people. But there are many more things that keep people from Christ Jesus than self-righteousness. I mean, to some extent, all things is going to have to mean all things. As you look back, What kept you from Christ? Maybe it was that list of good works. Maybe those good works are still keeping you from Christ. Like, no, I don't want to be needy. I'm going to cling to these. Or maybe it's your independence. You're a competent person. You're a successful person. You're someone who can achieve your goals and satisfy your ambitions. Is that what is keeping you from Christ? Is that part of the all things you need to let go of? That's bringing you down into the water? Or maybe it was your right to be the determiner of truth. You were going to stand above God and tell him what is true. True about morality. True about eternity. True about his own existence. Or maybe it was pleasure. Maybe it was the pleasure of sex or pornography or partying, of shopping, of accumulating as many life experiences as possible. Maybe that's what kept you from Christ. Or maybe it was the fear of losing friends or or family. What would they think of you if you accepted Christ? That list of all things includes all things. Paul says, I count all things as loss. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Jesus Christ is worth giving up all of those things. For some of you here today, the most pressing thing to count as loss may not be your religious accomplishments. It may not be your morality. Matthew 19.22 is the end of Jesus' speaking with the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler was so confident he had kept God's law. And so Jesus tells him to go and sell everything he has and give the money to the poor. Come follow him. Matthew 19, verse 22. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. The rich young ruler rested in his righteousness, but it was his love of possessions that kept him from the worth of Christ. From following Christ. See, he neither evaluated himself correctly, one of those essential aspects of saving faith, nor did he value Christ accurately. Christ wasn't as worthy as he truly is, and he wasn't in the danger that he truly was. And so he looks and says, no, I think I'm going to keep my possessions. See, regardless of the specifics of the all things in your life, our proclivity is to not see ourselves accurately, if we saw the extent of our sinfulness, if we realized the danger we were in, I'd like to say we'd gladly suffer the loss of all things. And I think to some extent that's true, but that takes a miracle. That takes God opening our hearts. That takes the Holy Spirit opening our eyes so that we see ourselves in the mirror of his word and that we see the beauty of Christ in his word and for our eyes to open and to say, I'm going to let go of this chest full of treasure or this chest full of sin or this chest full of what people think or this chest full of my religious accomplishments, this chest full of my pride. I can't have both life and this, so I get rid of it. But that takes a miracle. See, saving faith is not just about saving your soul. It's about gaining Christ, right? And I just love how how these two aspects in these verses bring together what our evangelism should be. We do need to tell people they have to count all as loss. But we need to talk about the gain of Christ. We need to do both of those things. Someone needs to accurately view themselves, and we can use the law to do that. That's true. But we also have to exalt Christ in his beauty. Salvation requires both of those. That's what saving faith is. I, 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 I never expected to look at verses 7 and 8 and say, here's what saving faith is. I, really, I think that Paul reveals it four times. Paul said, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. He did this because of whom he gained. Christ is what makes counting gain loss. It's his surpassing worth. Let's go to financial statement number four, spiritual appraisal. It's at the end of uh, verse eight. He says, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And, And really, it's kind of tough start. Stopping there, the sentence continues and may be found in Him. And those are are, our parallel phrases. But rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him. Paul doesn't. uh, Now we see also that in verse eight, and and so we're at the end phrase. There, count them, but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. His fourth kind of a, a financial statement here. Count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. That count is in the present tense. So we've seen something that Paul has done. He went from the past to the present. Then he went to the past, looking at an a, a, a event that he suffered loss of all things, and now he goes back to the present. He says, I count. He talks about this in an ongoing tense again. I count. I continue to do this. Paul doesn't look back wistfully He doesn't fondly think about his past accomplishments. He doesn't allow himself to bring out his past trophies and spend some time polishing them, whether before his conversion or after his conversion. He doesn't spend any time building up his view of himself. In fact, his evaluation is bleaker. He uses the harshest language here as if he's trying to get across a point. He says, I consider them in the current, right now, all things, before salvation and since salvation, I consider them rubbish. Now again, that's not to say that our obedience to Christ does not bring pleasure to God. When we obey dependently, our Father loves that. This is Paul in this whole kind of balancing mindset. When he's tempted to think that he brings one penny to the infinite treasure of Christ, he says, no, it's rubbish. Now let's talk about that word rubbish, okay? It's a good word. It's a, it's a filthy word. The Greek word could refer to everything from human excrement to rotten food, okay? Muck would be a good way to translate this. Filth would be a good way to translate this. The King James Version has a good. Dung is a good way to translate this. Rubbish is honestly a little weak, right? You think, wait, are we British all of a sudden? I'm going to take out the rubbish. I mean, who, who says rubbish? Rubbish is the disgusting slime you find inside a forsaken Ziploc bag in the back of your fridge. You're like, I don't know, was that parsley? I don't know what that was, cilantro maybe? But now it's slime. That is this word rubbish here. It's what you avoid getting on your fingers as you change a diaper. It's, it, it's why in lots of nurseries they have plastic gloves, right? I don't want that rubbish on my hand. Now, Paul's evaluation of, of his actions, whether before Christ or after Christ, he, he's not doing punishment here. He's not trying to punish himself. He's not beating himself up. He's not punching himself in the gut and saying, oh, I was really wicked and doing it again. This is not penance. He's not rubbing his nose and his waist like a dog who's been bad. I don't know if any of you have grown up with dogs, you do that. You're like, ah, you can't do this anymore. Paul keeps counting all things as rubbish for a purpose. And it's not to pay for his sins. He's not doing penance. He says, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Whoa, doesn't that sound a little bit like work salvation there? So that I may gain Christ. So that I may be found in him. Gain is the verb form of the same word used in in, in verse 7. Gain. Gain means to acquire through effort and investment. That does sound like work salvation. I'm trying to get Christ. See, gaining Christ and being found in him refers to our future standing before God. It refers to our being welcomed by him into the joy of his master. And Paul's just being consistent with the same words he's been using the whole time. This this, this metaphor he's been using of profit and loss. He's like, I want to profit Christ. I want to get Christ. I want Christ to be in my plus column. We do not get Christ in our plus column by thinking bad thoughts about ourselves. We get Christ in our plus column only through faith, by grace, right? It's God's work in our heart that we believe. But what we see here is the earnestness of Paul. And that's really what we should be focusing on. It's not, he always trying to gain Christ. No, it's just, it's, it's this earnestness. I'm going to think of everything as slime and muck and dung so that I may get Christ. Until Paul gains Christ in the future. Until that salvation is complete in the most complete sense, right? There is this way that we are waiting for glorification. For us to be who we are going to one day be. To be what he's already saved us to be. Until then, Paul's mental discipline, like this takes work, is to view all things he could potentially place any confidence in as as filth. So when you are tempted to think, soul, look at the good you've done. Look at how you've provided for your family. Look how many people have been saved. Look at how well I've raised my kids. Look at the money in my bank account. There's all kinds of things we could put confidence in. It's not just in in in, in religious coming to church or memorizing passages. It's it's that whole... And, uh, Pastor Hughes, in that first message at our church retreat, talked about this. It's all those things that you look and say, I'm a good person. So when you're tempted to say, soul, aren't you a good person? You must get that thought out of your mind. It's like after you've eaten something spoiled, something rotten, right? Do you want that taste to linger in your mouth? No, it's disgusting. You want to drink something. You want to spit out something. You want to scour your tongue down, right? Get rid of that taste. That's what we have to do when we're tempted to think, look at me being a good person. Or haven't I been wise? Look at my accolades. When you're tempted to boast and you're being better than others, and this is something we can fall to constantly. More love than someone, more patient than someone, more gentle than someone, more joy than someone. You must scour that filth out of your mind. Bring some mental comment and get that out of there. When you're tempted to think you deserve to be treated than you currently are because of the sacrifices you've made and you're keeping tally of those. You must hold those sacrifices at arm's length like a putrid diaper. Was, was there anything wrong with the sacrifices? No, you might have done them to please God. But we have a way of thinking back about our past and suddenly it becomes about us. Like, get that putrid diaper, throw it in that trash can, tie it up, and take it out to the garbage. Get rid of those thoughts. That's what Paul's saying here. I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. I don't want anything to get in the way of me arriving, of me continuing in saving faith. Some of you are in a habit of thinking right now in ways that are incompatible with saving faith. I'm not even saying that you're not saved. I'm saying that you are risking it because you're focusing upon what you've done or what you haven't done or how you're different from others. When you're tempted to make that list of Bible times, scriptures memorized, converts won, gifts given, sacrifices made, tear that list up. Grab that baby wipe. Some of you have them in your vans. You keep them there. And get that, get that, he says it's dung. Get that dung out of your mind. Pour some mental bleach on the daydream of your self-righteousness. Get rid of it so that you can continue in saving faith. See, that kind of thinking is more dangerous to your salvation. And that's why Paul says, beware, beware, beware. It is dangerous to your salvation, your your certain and secure salvation if you're truly in Christ Jesus. And I know that that's complex, right? Hebrews is all about this, this warning. To those who are truly saved, don't fall away. Don't fall away. Continue believing. Keep believing. That kind of thinking is more dangerous to your salvation The handling used needles found at a homeless encampment is to your body. You wouldn't do that, right? Not without gloves and serious protection on. We need to get rid of these proud thoughts. We need to count them as rubbish, as dung, as filth. We have such zeal to protect our body from disease. We take steps to protect our body from getting the flu. But gaining Christ... Arriving at heaven to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, is more valuable than being healthy, right? It's infinitely more valuable. Paul counts all things as rubbish so that he may gain Christ. He wants his spiritual bank account to have one one word in that plus column, one figure, and it's Christ. He wants that statement of profit and loss to, 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 he's okay with everything in the lost column, right? Having everything he's ever done. And 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 let's throw on there all the things that I love and the sin I used to enjoy and my desire for possessions and hobbies, let's kind of all as lost so that I can have Christ, so that I can gain him. Don't give up Christ. How foolish to gain the whole world and lose Christ. We, we began with this kind of cruel question, this, 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 this hypothesizing. If you were to meet the Lord Jesus after your death and he were to say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. Maybe after this morning you'd say something like this. But Lord Jesus, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them but rubbish that I may gain you. Without you, I have only loss." Without you, I am condemned. Without you, I'm imaginably guilty. Without you, I'm deserving of unending hell. Without you, I've got nothing to show. I can't bring anything to the table. I've got no defense. All I have is loss without you. But I've gained you, Jesus. See, this is the kind of defense, hypothetically, you would make. Jesus wouldn't never say this to his people, right? But hypothetically, it's a great question to ask. Would you say, but I've gained you, Jesus. Jesus, you are my sacrifice. Jesus, you are my savior. You are my high priest. You are my Lord and my king. You are my wisdom and my righteousness and my sanctification and my redemption. See, that's what saving faith is. You are my resurrection and my life. You are my only hope in life and in death. That's what saving faith is. If Jesus said, I don't know, you'd be like, but Jesus, you've been my all, I love you. You're my only hope. You're my righteousness. The good news, the gospel, is that those who have true saving faith, have that faith that both accurately evaluates their spiritual condition without Christ and accurately evaluates the worth of Christ, will never be greeted. You'll never hear, Depart from me, I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. That's good news. That is the gospel. If you have saving faith, you will never hear that. But it's going to require both of those things. To accurately view yourself, to look back and say, It's all garbage. God, I don't bring anything. I've got no no spiritual pennies. No spiritual half pennies. No spiritual nothing. I've got nothing. I think of Britain, they've got half pennies. I've got nothing. And Jesus, you're my all. You're my my wisdom and my righteousness and my sanctification. You're my redemption. That's what saving faith is. See, those who have true saving faith will always be greeted by their master saying, well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your master. Everyone who has saving faith is going to be greeted that way. So the question that you have to ask yourself, and if you're saved, you keep asking this. Do I have true saving faith? Do I have true saving faith? Do I Am I continually accurately viewing myself, am I continually exalting the priceless worth of Christ? And what we're going to do now is we're just going to take a minute. I'm just going to let it be silent. And I want you to ask that question to yourself, and then I'm going to pray. Do I have true saving faith? And if you like, but I believe in Jesus, then say, do I believe today? Am I continuing to count all that as loss because of all that Christ has gained? Let's take that time. Father, we are humbled by your word. and We thank you for preserving this testimony from the Apostle Paul. Lord, he opened up his soul to the Philippians and gave us a picture of what saving faith is and how humbling to see uh, the, this man continue to count all as rubbish as compared to knowing Christ so that he could gain Christ. He doesn't want anything to get in the way of that true saving faith. Father, I do pray, Lord, that you would protect those of us who are saved. I pray, Lord, that we'd be humbled this morning, Father. I think that our list of all things, um, it varies, Lord, where some of us are are maybe more moral and and, and cling to a list of what we have and haven't done. Some of us are more driven by pleasure and are all things as possessions and stuff and experiences. Lord, there's so many things that keep uh, those apart from you, apart from you, Lord. They, they, they cling to them, Lord. They go down with their chest full of treasure, with their chest full of good works, Lord. Father, may that be not true of any of us here, Lord. God, I ask, Father, for the gift of, of saving faith. It's your spirit that has to open our eyes. You were gracious to Saul, to Paul in the Damascus Road that he saw the glory of Christ and he knew that he was undone. You were gracious to Isaiah when in, in that temple he saw your glory and he was undone. He was unraveled before you. I pray, Father, that as we look at the worth of all that we've done, all that we haven't done, of, uh, of all that we cling to, Lord, that, that, that we would see it as it truly is. We would see our condition as it truly is apart from you, Lord. And so that we would keep clinging to Christ, so that Christ would keep being the most valuable in the universe to us, Lord. That to be found in Him would be the greatest cry of our heart, our greatest hope, our greatest confidence, Lord. That we would have our total investment in the Lord Jesus, and not just in and in, in tr- in protect us from any kind of trying to attain Him. We're not trying to to, to get. Him. We're not trying to barter or trade for Him. Lord, but we're trying to continue faithfully to him, continue believing the way that you gave us that first faith. Lord, I pray for those who do not have true faith here this morning. I pray, Father, that the spiritual facade would be crumbling. Lord, I pray, Father, that seeing Christ as, as king and as priest and as prophet, that seeing Christ exalted and all that he offers what, what would be more beautiful than any sense of self-preservation. Lord, that, that, that you would, and out of true self-preservation, Lord, work in uh, the lives of those who don't know you, that they would run to Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you uh, give saving faith. You are God who continues to save. And please, God, help us to keep believing the way we began to believe, that we might count all things rubbish, that we might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but it's only from you. Thank you, Father, for this time together, and may you be pleased as we sing. Amen.